Blog Talk Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. QLPOR, as it's widely known, features a bevy of poets, spoken word artists, and live poetry readings with best-selling authors. Your host is Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Good evening, everyone. My special guest tonight is Nicholas Michael Ravnikov. Nicholas is the originator of the new obsessive poetic form called the Polish Octopus. Excuse me. I'm losing it. He has published two poetry collections. Nicholas has done everything. (laughs) He is the man. I am so glad he's here. We've been working on this for months, trying to pull this thing together. I'm just so pleased that you're with me, Nicholas. Welcome. Dr. Ingram, I'm I'm really happy to be here. And before we start, I just want to say that you're doing a real service to the poetry community by expanding the visibility of poets and also just deepening the conversation around poetry and the process of uh, writing and publishing. And I know that your background is in poetry as therapy. And uh, I personally just want to thank you for the work that you're doing, because I think it does have a therapeutic value, not just for the poets that you interview and the the audience that's listening, but also just for the culture at large, which I think gets the chance to evolve with the added presence of this kind of mindful programming and uh, poetic content added to the mix as a a welcome respite from the kind of onslaught and overwhelm of our typical mass media and social media interaction. So, So thank you for having me here. But more than that, thank you for doing what you do. All right. Thank you, Nicholas. And again, with the opening, you know me. I'm prone to mess it up. So this time my voice gave out. But it's okay. We're together and we're going to have fun tonight. All right. Yeah, we're going to roll with (laughs) Nicholas, my friend, Nicholas, what is poetry? Um, So I had a a really good friend, a, a, a comrade in arms, if you will, in the poetic battle. Um, named Ryan Kulevsky, who said it better than anyone I've ever heard, which is that poetry is the reproduction of poetry by other means. And I think part of the reason why I think this is so adequate or apt is that it speaks to the evolution of poetic traditions as spiritual and philosophical wellsprings. Uh, mm-hmm. They inform our development of language and thought and culture because at, at base, when I think about where we get the word poetry from the ancient Greek poesis, right, it's, yes. it's distinct from ketisis, which, right, ketisis is a sort of like uh, creation from nothing, creation ex nihilo, right? Um, but poesis is like a making of with whatever's at hand. So it's a making out of the materials that we have to make something new. Uh, and I really think that, that while it certainly involves musicality and imagery and figurative language and emotion and intellect uh, fused together, I think it's the imagination that is fundamental to what's happening in poetry because uh, the human imagination and, and potentially even the, the artificial intelligent imagination could be able to create new poetic forms uh, that can then lead to new sorts of thought, new kind of cultural movements, uh, new philosophies, and new forms of expression. 
Wow, Nicholas. <laughs> wow. <laughs> the imagination. Wow. Tell me more, my friend. I can tell you can talk. Tell me more. Sure. Tell me more. Uh, I've been told I have the gift of gab, but I'm not quite yes. clear what that, what that means. Um, maybe we'll find out. Yeah, yeah we will. So I think... I, so, so I, you know, I started writing when I was really young, and it would it would be primarily like what I would think of as song lyrics. But over mm-hmm. the years, that's really evolved. Um, I, I mean, I make what I call poems on canvases uh, using using paint that I splatter and smear around, um, and wow. then I'll just write like a like a cliche on it, right? So, like mm-hmm. I did one the other day. I'm looking at it right now, and it says, uh, <laughs> "Nothing is impossible." So I just take this cliche statement, right? Nothing is impossible. Right. Yes. And and you've got two ways that you can understand that if I were to talk to you in conversation, right? It's, right. it's an equivocal statement. So either there is not anything which is not possible, right? Or that which does not exist cannot exist, <laughs> right? And so okay. either of those two ways of interpreting the statement, nothing is impossible, can't be you can't derive it from the context of looking at the canvas, right? So now that the poem on the canvas has destabilized the context in which the sentence existed, there's a new meaning that's devoid of the the old meaning, right? The poem Mm -hmm. itself has destroyed uh, the different possible interpretations and created a new one that's available to the the reader. Um, So I think about other poets like Christian Book, um, the Canadian poet, I mean, he, he's created poems that are living organisms where he's feeding, uh, <laughs> he's using the DNA code, uh, the ATGC, to mm-hmm. create new poems that are responding to different poems that he's written. And then they're going forth and creating new poems. So I think, um, right, our, our capacity, the human imagination's capacity to find material that's already out there and remix it reuse it, uh, mash it up, and recycle it in different ways, ultimately winds up producing, you know, the, the drastic changes that we've seen in human technology from, mm-hmm. from way back to the present. Um, and I think the imagination is at the core of that. All right. Well, how are your views about poetry received in traditional forms? Oh, I mean, well, I certainly admire, uh, I admire the classics. I admire the traditional forms. Um, I've worked in a number of different, what I would call traditional forms, the Villanelle, the Festina. Uh, I've tried my hand at some sonnets before. Um, Mm -hmm. I certainly have a, I have a reverence for them. Um, I would say the, the epic poem, though it's not necessarily a, a strict form, but something like dactylic hexameter of, of Homer, uh, yes. something I definitely aspire to. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I think as well, the, the ballad form that was kind of uh, adopted and innovated upon by Emily Dickinson uh, is likewise something that I look back to with a lot of fondness. Uh, and while I, think it, I, while I think that there's value in understanding the forms of the past, and even in mm-hmm. trying to recontextualize the forms of the past. Um, I also think that, uh, that, that part of what we see in the development of the poetic tradition throughout history, common sweep of both progression and conservation, right? So both the progressive and the conservative spirit are sort of at, at the heart of poetry and what we do. 
Um, right. So while I, while I want to pay homage to the greats, right, there's also, mm-hmm. a sort, I mean, in the, in the same way that Virgil was battling with Homer, and I mean that in the, in the sense of like a rap battle, right? Yes. Virgil is, is engaged in an agon with Homer. Dante is engaged in an agon with Virgil. Milton is engaged in an agon with all of them, right? Um, mm-hmm. that's, that's the conversation that I want to be a part of. So in order to be a part of it, I've not only got to speak their language, but I've got to invent my own. Oh, wow. I like that. So, you know, I ask this question every time. Why is it that we do what we do? Why is it important? Why is it sure. important, my friend? Well, I mean, this connects to, I, I think, some of the other questions that I had anticipated. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a quote that, that was actually posted in the quintessential listening group. Um, I believe it was Percy Bysshe Shelley who said that poets are the, uh, the unacknowledged legislators of the world. I'm looking and, at it now. Yes. Yeah. Right. And, and I think, I, I believe that there, there is a, there was certainly truth to that during the romantic era. And I think that there's still a degree of truth to that today. It's still true. Uh, mm-hmm. but George Oppen came along uh, in the, the early 20th century uh, as a part of the objectivist movement and kind of revised that statement to say that poets are the legislators of the unacknowledged world, right? Mm. So where, where he was then trying, and, and the, the objectivist group was trying to bring more attention down to the particularities of things, um, yes. the things that we, don't, that we don't often pay attention to. Um, I, I would actually say, I think, in, in, a, in contemporary society, I think one of the reasons why poets are so important is that we serve as the jury uh, to issue a verdict on crimes against reality. Um, I think that we've had enough legislation take place. Um, mm-hmm. the, the people have spoken, as it were, and okay. now it's sort of open for poets to um, take reality and take the way that we perceive uh, you know, various other individuals, cultures, um, people who are in positions of power, and, and really sort of collaborate with each other to pass our judgment on what's going on, um, mm. to be able to decide whether or not some of the social forms that we're subjected to are really serving us, are serving humanity. Um, I, I think that that's, you know, what, what poets have done for a long time is give voice to spiritual longing to uh, the human fears of and reconciliation with death. Uh, I think that poetry has helped to give form to poetic thought in ways that go beyond the simple uh, propositional logic of traditional philosophy. Uh, I think that that metaphor and the, the, I would even say, I would go so far as to say the non-linguistic use of metaphor, um, both in poetic in poetic creation of all of its forms, um, but, but metaphorical uh, language and reasoning in particular allows the human mind to say things that it can't say with words. Oh, that right. I like that. Through words. I like that. You know, usually I'm moving to the discussion of your book, and tonight the book is Imaginary Friends, plus your earlier work. But I want to hear a poem from you. I want to hear sure. a poem right now. Yes. Well, I think I, what I'm going to do is read uh, read a piece from Imaginary Friends. Um, All right. Nicholas, I'd like you yeah. to read two, actually. Read two, back to back. All right? I'm going to shake it well, up a little bit. 
I'm I'm going to read the first piece that that's in the book, and it's a longer one, so I think this okay. might suffice. That works. Uh, right. And we'll that's see fine. when it's done. If you want me to read another, I okay. will. All right. This is called, uh, and I should say, th- this this poem was written, oh, probably back in around 2008. Uh, I was not I was not yet sober when I wrote this. All right. Uh, and, and I think you'll be able to to kind of see some of that emerging from underneath it. Okay. Uh, and I was meditating on what it was that made me write poems, how it was mm. the poems came to me. This is called, If I Leave Now, I Won't Remember What I Came Here to Do. I would like to apologize for not including any sentences in this text. If, while you are reading, you notice that where you would expect to see a sentence, there isn't one, Do not be alarmed. Allow me to explain what has happened and how to safely proceed. When I first embarked on this project, I heard people drinking out back behind the poem, but had no way to speak with or relate to them. It's not that they were drunk so much as that they didn't feel like talking to me. They kept repeating, I will pull your hairpiece off. I will pull your hairpiece off. Now, I've heard people drinking out back behind the poem before, but I've always found them quite genial. Normally, I approach with ease and a smile. Not this last time. Please don't think they're an inconsiderate bunch or even all that different from you and me. As much as I wish I could have found them in better spirits, I have to say they appeared this time quite physically revolting, much more so than on previous visits. They did not seem the same people whom I had grown so used to seeing. I will pull your hairpiece off. I will pull your hairpiece off. I will pull your hairpiece off as if that was all they could say as a meaningful excuse. But that's because I can put myself in your position. I heard people drinking out back behind the poem. What kind of crap is that? You have every right to feel dissatisfied, let down, unimpressed, angry even. But let's not get violent or make any snap judgments. There's, there's no way I can describe to you how these people look. If, if you'd been in my shoes, you surely would have back into the poem yourself, perhaps even out of the neighborhood completely. I don't doubt that, not for one minute. And the sheer irrelevance of that one line they kept repeating. It would have maddened the most crack-shot poetician. But I resolved, before setting out to write this poem, in which no sentences appear, and out back of which I heard these people drinking and prattling on about pulling off my hairpiece to accomplish one very simple objective. We might call it a goal or an outcome, if you like. I will pull your hairpiece off. You see, I came to understand in my own private contemplations that this is what my muses had meant to tell me all along. They were being kind to have told me so indirectly. The proof, to turn a popular phrase on its rear end, is in the poem. I would have balked, as you surely do now, at the preposterous idea that I could remove your toupee or wig or weave with a mere poem. But after serious meditation, I have no doubt it will happen before this ordeal is over. Go on. Feel your head. All that hair. It will be torn away soon enough, and you will be exposed for what you are. You might feel ashamed, but you needn't. The most likely explanation for our conditions are genetic. We have no control over the matter. That in itself serves as reason enough that we should do it, only to help you and I become more comfortable with who and what we are. I cannot tell you 
how satisfied I am now with those drunken fools who I allow access to the yard of my poem in exchange for their suggestions and occasional inspiration. They have indeed proven themselves invaluable. You should be so lucky to have a set of your own peasants. Of course, they prefer as anyone else that I would call them serfs, but there's no way they can hear me now. And while I have no doubt that you will try to tell them behind my back that I referred to them as peasants, you will be exposed by them. And whom do you suspect they will believe? Their loving landlord and poetical benefactor who translates for them into perfect sentenceless poems, their deepest, truest emotional realities, or some schmo who lost their hairpiece, who rambles on about a man talking about the people behind his poem. They will have no idea what you're talking about because I have taken measures to keep them dull. They're quite stupid. In fact, I invite you to try. I urge you, please, go on and convince them of my maniacal ways. Perhaps they will listen to you. But before I leave, I have one question that desperately needs asking. But please know, I am not trying to be confrontational when I ask, would you like your hairpiece back? And that's the end of the poem. <laughs> that's all I can handle. <laughs> that was epic in itself. What was the purpose of that piece? Talk to me. Yeah, the purpose of the piece. Well, there's a transition within it, right? Between yes. the speaker of the poem taking on some sort of inspiration, right? And and mm -hmm. it being an uncertain inspiration. There's a in the same way that uh that Homer would invoke the muse. There's a sort of recognition that idea for the poem is come from somewhere else and it's not in me and it's not in the poem there's something outside of it um, and the movement throughout this is explicitly directed toward the reader uh, and and eventually forcing the poem to submit or the the inspiration for the poem to submit to the narrator's voice right um, yes i think as well the the hairpiece is sort of it, it serves as a cosmetic function, I think. Um, and I was at the time reading a lot of uh, Plato, specifically mm -hmm. the the, Gorg the Gorgias, which which is a dialogue that's all about rhetoric. And, and in there, um, Socrates talks about rhetoric as um, as a kind of cosmetics. And he also refers to that cosmetics as like um, like confectionery baking, so like making sweets or desserts. Uh, and these are kinds of uh, compliments that people put on, things that we do to make ourselves appear other than we are. Right? So throughout the whole poem, I'm sort of acknowledging in this underhanded way that poem itself is a kind of hairpiece that I've put on. Um, mm -hmm. And, of course, the reader can see that that's what I've done. I'm acknowledging the artifice of it. But at the same time, there's also an artifice, uh, a costume, if you will, that the reader has put on in, in their own hairpiece, which is right when we suspend our disbelief and we listen to the listen to the narration of the poem and follow along with it. When we try to make sense of what it is that we're hearing, um, I, I would say that's the that's the general gist of what I'm getting across in that piece. All right. What was an early experience, my friend, where you learned that poetic language had power? Yeah. Uh, it's difficult to pin down a first. Um, okay. I think, so, I mean, I was raised um, from a young age. I was raised in the Catholic Church uh, until mm -hmm. about 14 or 15 years old. Um, so 
certainly the you know the, the the trappings of Catholic ritual and mass and the liturgy influenced my developing brain without a doubt. Uh, that was a, probably the first kind of poem that I was exposed to or the first kind of poetic language um, that I was exposed to. But I also remember getting in trouble for writing a poem when I was in like the seventh grade. Um, All right. I had, you know, I had, I wrote something about a flower on a shelf that fell. <laughs> and I don't know the, maybe there was more to it than I'm remembering, but but the teacher was very concerned about this like highly emotional poem that I had written, and then it got brought up at one of my parent teacher conferences, and my parents looked at me very sternly uh, <laughs> and sort of, why are you writing these poems? What do these flower pots mean? Um, so I, I you know I kind of knew that, that that had power, and then I, you know I would also just say like the like I said the you know, the, the wide variety of poetic acts, right? Music mm-hmm. being one of them uh, definitely caught my attention. So being born in 1982, I'm kind of a, a cross between an early millennial hip hop generation kind of, <laughs> kind of cat, right? So, um, you know, from, from Bob Dylan uh, to the Wu-Tang Clan, right? I, I was able to like see influences that ran back into the past that really sort of right where i could see how the poetry that underlies the music and the lyrics influenced all of these different generations and then all of that took me back to earlier influences right where um i i would start to get back to like william blake um and and really kind of appreciate a deeper tradition uh that was there and eventually back to homer and sappho and I would even mm-hmm. say the caves at last go, you know, um, yes. I, don't, I don't know that there's a, a time when I've really encountered human, l- human production of art or language that I haven't been in my best moments awed by its power. All right. All right. All right. You know, it's funny. I was thinking when you shared 1982, you were born a year after I started college. Oh yeah. <laughs> there must have been something great going on. I, I mean, 1982 might seem like uh, so for me. That's 40. That's 40 years ago, and I'm hoping right now I'm only having a midlife crisis and not a big quarter life. Right. Wow. Getting <laughs> old. I am truly getting old. Please share. It's only a number. It's only a number. Another, another poem, my friend. Um, so we had talked a little bit about the the Polish octaves. Um, you'd mentioned those um, in the intro bio. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna read a what I would call a string of these or a uh, a necklace of them. I've, I've picked right. eight. So came to me. This form came to me first in uh, around 2016. Um, I, I first developed the idea for the form, but it didn't take full fruition until um, 2020 in the advent of the pandemic when I was left to my own devices to figure out what I was writing. Um, so I devised this form. It's a, the Polish octave is a single stanza. It stands alone. And there are eight lines in each poem. And each line can have either eight letters or eight syllables or eight words. So there's a lot of, there's some flexibility in the, in the line length or the line measure. The issue that, is, that makes the Polish octave difficult is that it can only use the letters of the eight-letter word title. 
So, and the title itself cannot appear in the poem. So I'm going to read a string of these, and I'll read the, the title word that the octave itself is based on before I read the octave itself. And I'll give some pause between them so that All the right. readers can tell when I'm moving from one to the other. Lavender. Revel and reveal. A de-leaved alder re-eared evander. A dread raven davened larva dead. A Dedalian ladle leveled a vernal dander-laden land. Verve rendered venereal elan. An annealed veneer, a lad earned, deviled in a velen veranda, and a venal vandal dandled a needle near a navel nerve. Addled reader, adrenal addenda endear. Learn, lava, redder. Pandemic. Man, independence made me manic. A decamped deadpan epicene academician, an MC and me amended pemmican empanada, nine pence a piece. A dim diadem impeded a deicide. Indeed, I need a nap, an acid mama, Medici candied manna, and a minicam cinema ice capped panacea. I denied African pain. I denied dead men Medicaid. I denied penance. I am a menace, Cadence. Wordplay. Yop, doo-wop, payola, daddy. Plop, a PayPal layaway loop. Parlay, a parody parlor. Drawl, a droll ploy, a wordy play. Drywall, a doorway rap. Roar, woo, a rowdy oral poly playpal dolly. Drool away. Allow wayward wool warp arter. Lordy, lord, pray, a polar warlord prowl dowry. Payload? Loyal odor, gunmetal, manet, meat mammoth, mangle mental luggage, gag me, antenna, gauge, tenement alumni, genteel gateman, glam legume, a gaggle, tattletale, a glum gnat gown eat a gloom, a gluten mantle, latent, lenten, mutagen, glean, ante, gelt gleam, galatea, a teen mama, Management attenuate an unguent, a gallant glue tang, talent untangle an unmeant language, emanate annual enemata, untame a tune, let lung augment elegant lament, ink blots, in silk knots, in soot I link toil, oboists blot lotion on Boston snobs in kilt. Bilbo slinks in, in bikini, on stilts. Snooky insists blotto bonobos blink. Look, I'll boil non-book notions in ink. I'll oink obits in skits. I'll kiss TNT. No, no, it's not tonsillitis. It's billions of billions of soloist skill kink. Seashore. As a hero shears a horse's ass. Ere he hear a sutter's erase a rose so rare, he oars ashore, shares the horse ear. See her shoes, her sores, or her rash. She harasses seahorses. Hear, hear, shoo, shoo. She shears her hero's roar, a rash error. Seers see, hearers hear. So he hearses her, harsh. Oh, 
Here's a rarer horror. Eros erases ash. And I'll close with this one. Question. It unites in noise. It outquotes etiquette on sight. It quits inquests in quiet sequins, unties nutso notes. Its tuition squints to noun stone. Einstein insists no quotient is unseen. Intuition's not not nonsense. Etui tones onus units to intone sentient sweets unto snottiest sinuses tissues. Tension now sensuous, I oust intent. Etu ennui? Wow. And that's that. Nicholas, what were you potentially rebel, rebelling against? That's mm. the word. Sure. That compels uh, you to create a new poetic form. Sure. It's interesting that you phrase it as a rebellion. Um, because creating the form is creating new constraints. All right. And so I, if I have to be completely honest, uh, I wanted to, it didn't seem to me like there was enough constraint in poetry available. And I wanted to create basis or template for a form that other people could rebel against. <laughs> Uh, okay. If that makes any kind of sense. So, so the bro- the broader context. I mean, I call these things Polish octaves, right? And um, yes. I can tell you why, if if you want to hear, I can tell you why. I'd I love to. Know. I was going to ask you. Yeah. So, you. so the way that this whole thing got started was I got paired up in in 2016 with a, a graphic artist for uh, an invitational uh, collaborative project uh, at mm-hmm. uh, press here in Racine, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm called Black Eyed Press, and it was an eight-by-eight show. So each artist and writer got an eight-by-eight-inch piece of paper that they got to make their prints on. Uh, And I believe there were 64 copies that wound up getting made. And so I collaborated with um, the graphic artist Spencer Elizabeth Karshevsky. And so when we were sitting down talking about it, Seashore was actually the first of these that I wrote. Um, And, you know, I knew that it had to be eight-by-eight, uh, and I just kind of started with that without a strict line count. Just I'm going to take an eight letter word and I'm going to make, I'm going to anagram it for eight lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and in trying to think about what, what to call it, um, she and I were talking and it, I mean, it turned out her last name was Karshevsky. My, my great grandmother's last name was Scott Nicky. So I'm <laughs> a quarter, I'm a quarter Polish. She's half Polish. So I just called it offhandedly the Polish octave at the time. Okay. Um, All right. <laughs> but the broader context that came to me in 2020 was that by establishing this, this kind of count, right. And saying, I'm, I'm sort of claiming this for the, I'm claiming this poetic form with this measure uh, and mm-hmm. this particular arrangement in the, in the name of, of Polish people <laughs> or in the name of, okay. of Polacks, right. Mm-hmm. It's a very mm-hmm. Polish thing to do because Polacks tell the best Polish jokes. Um, All right. Right. And, and it establishes the basis for any other uh, identity community to claim some sort of uh, numerical value of word and, and call it their own if they wish to do that. So, for instance, we might have something called uh, the LGBTQ plus uh, nonsense for a nine letter word. 
right? There might mm-hmm. be such thing as the, uh, the, the, the Latino quatrain, or um, uh, you might take something like uh, <laughs> the, the cishet male um, ten letter word. I don't know what you would call that. Decigram. Um, All right. Sounds good. Right? You. you follow what I'm saying there? <laughs> yes, I do. There's, there's a whole template now that's available for any community to pick up um, and choose a word of that length, write a stanza mm-hmm. of that many lines, and use only the letters of the title. Okay. It's. <laughs> I finally realized what you're saying. <laughs> yes, I, I realize it's I difficult. Finally to, it's, it's, it's I finally complex, got it. It's very complex. So if we were it to it, right, if you, if you, Dr. Ingram, if you wanted yes. to create, if you wanted to create a variation on this, you could, mm-hmm. for instance, take a 12-letter word and then yes. anagram that 12-letter word to see how many other possible words you could make using only those letters, and then right. write a 12-line stanza, and each line could have either 12 letters or 12 words or 12 syllables. And you, for all intents and purposes, you could call it the Ingram, the Ingram yes. 12. <laughs> By Jove, I think I've got it. All right. <laughs> I think I've got it. Continue as you share. I'm sorry, I interrupted. No, no, no. That, no interruption at all. I think I'd reached, I had reached the end, and I'm just glad I got a chance to clarify. Because <laughs> yes. I, I realize it's confusing. It's It'll take a minute, but once you hang in there, just like life, it'll be all right. You've written two books, the first being Three Dirty Sunsets and the second being Imaginary Friends. Let's talk about Imaginary Friends first. What inspired the book? Um, So actually, the the order is reversed. Imaginary Friends came first in June, and then... Three Dirty Sunsets came out in November of last year. And actually, this last month, I've released four more books. Uh, oh. I've, I released a book a week in January as a sort of challenge to myself. But Imaginary Friends. Um, I, so I had been sitting on um, a slew of poems that had been published. Uh, in, okay. You know, from, I mean, going way back to like 2000. Um, uh, up until probably 2018, um, mm-hmm. I had this whole collection of pieces. I think it was 88 at the time or around 90. And I, I narrowed down the ones that I, I felt fit together and were sort of referring to mental characters that I had kind of taken on over my journey as a poet and my development right. as a poet. And I tried to just arrange those. So in a lot of ways, I think the different characters that are speaking in and through the poems are very much the, the drunken people behind the poem that I refer to in, um, in that first poem that I read. If I came yes. now, I won't remember what I came here to do. If I leave now, I won't remember what I came here to do. Um, All right. So that was really just an opportunity to bring together pieces that had seen publication in you know, single magazines and journals and have them all fit together. Now, was there a reason that you chose to feature imaginary friends on the flyer? Why did well, you choose that particular one too? Yeah, well, I didn't know where I would wind up being in the okay. of, uh, pieces that I was publishing in January. 
Okay. Had um, aimed to publish in January, and also Imaginary Friends is just kind of the it's the first book, right? It's it's uh, my first child, which is not to say that it's my favorite, but it's definitely mm-hmm. my <laughs> I say my oldest, but you know it's less than a year. Um, All right, then. All right. Yeah. Well, tell me. Let's go into the title. I mean, I think that intrigued me as well. Just imagine, okay, you could hear it all the time. It was yeah. words, but they meant something to you. Right. Talk to me about that. Yeah. I mean, you're noticing a common theme that, that emerges in my work, which is taking commonplace and everyday cliched statements, uh, oftentimes equivocal statements, and decontextualizing them or putting them on their head. Um, all right. So part of the reason, I mean, I always had imaginary friends growing up. That was uh, like a big part of my play was, you know, creating these other characters that were only in my head. Um, and I think in some in some cases, I was talking to them and not even hearing them say anything back to me, but they were just sort of, uh, I don't know, foils for my own speech, right? Okay. Opportunities for me to engage in play. And mm-hmm. so having that kind of relationship to imaginary friends as a as a child i think poems really start poetry and reading poetry of other poets really kind of served that function for me um another place where i really connect with the concept of imagination and the imaginary um uh, mm-hmm. in reading in reading plato specifically the the republic the allegory of the cave um the light of the fire that casts the shadows or the light Mm -hmm. that comes into the cave from outside uh, is identified as the imagination, right? It's uh, Mm -hmm. it is that which makes the imagining possible or that which makes the, the perception possible. Um, When Socrates before Socrates really introduces the whole allegory to Glaucon, he asks Glaucon like, can, like, can you picture this, <laughs> right? Can you picture this, picture a bunch of people chained up in a cave looking at a wall with shadows on it. You got mm-hmm. that? And Glaucon is like, oh, yes, I see it very clearly in my mind. So like right there, before, before the allegory has even started, Socrates has done to Glaucon what the people who keep this, you know, crazy tyrannical <laughs> cave of shadows are doing to the people that they keep chained up in there, right? Um, so, so as much as the as much as our imaginary friends bring us comfort, and this this gets back to the earlier question you asked, as much mm-hmm. as our imaginary friends might bring us comfort, they also create the environment that constrains us and the the environment that we have to evolve in and out of. Um, they are the constraints that we rebel against by creating new constraints. Oh, wow. Please share a poem. Sure. This is, uh, this is a new one called, uh, this is from uh, Funky Tacos, one of the January books. It's called No Sugar Added Soy Dingleberry Frap. What is that, you asked? I used to love when you asked questions about my lines. It was the entry point to so many conversations that had nothing to do with poetry. In this case, the line was, the stone tumor of the clouds. I said it in bed, our bed for the record. It's just a line, I say. So what do you think? The Canada geese have come and gone. Our daughter's hair is shorter. 
Our problems seemed bigger than ever for a while. Then they just suddenly disappear, like sunlight filters through the fog and then suddenly filters the fog. This patience is a practice for the end. Of what, you wonder? The line, I say. I repeat the line. The stone tumor of the clouds, I say again, needlessly. I wonder if you want its biography. See, what happened was earlier, we were waiting in line. I thought it was for coffee, but you had already ordered via their app. And then spewed out a series of code words over my lap in the drive through The barista's voice echoed it all back through the speaker. They say, there's a sale on drinks. Buy two and save. Do you want extra? And you said, sure. Then asked me, do I want a coffee? And repeated coffee, back speaker, silence, then static, then, okay, please pull forward. I felt more like blank, whatever, when they hand us our drinks. I guess then I'm not sure how the line arrived, but it showed up in my ear, I think. Maybe how it used to be when you'd, you'd press a button and wait for the shutter to open and close. But we don't bother with that any longer. It's just pressing a circle on your phone and the picture saves. How, I'm not sure yet whether the stone tumor is, is in the cloud or is the cloud. And I'm hoping secretly your questions might help me discern whether the line needs revision. But you don't ask me why wow about it you keep your eyes on tiktok and say it sounds nice That's the end. <laughs> as you think about your body of work my friend what are some of the predominant things that you write about yeah uh self-reflexivity and self-referentiality are definitely mm-hmm. common gestures that i use throughout um i'm i'm almost always aware in a poem that I'm writing a poem. Um, okay. I would say, I would say likewise, um, a suspicion of language and a concomitant reverence of language. Um, I like to use language as a metaphor in my writing. Um, so I like to have speak or have things write that don't typically speak or write. And I also like to have the language do things language doesn't necessarily do. Um, Mm -hmm. I also tend to tend to think that imagination and illusion and dreams, uh, fantasy representation, um, those, those sorts of elements, flights of hand um, often come into play. And I, I also usually write particular voices in mind. So, I mean, you notice a couple of times in Polish Octaves and, and in other pieces, I sort of, I'll put on a voice, um, either with a particular line or, or with a poem. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, w- I would say those would be sort of the common themes. Um, th- there's also generally a suspicion of authority, including my All own. right. So there's a suspicion of the author's authority. You know, there's so much that I want to ask you. I'm going to save some of my questions for the next time you come back, and hopefully you will. Is a poem letting your guard down? (laughs) Is a poem letting your guard down or building a wall? You know I love to ask ask that question. Yeah, you do. (laughs) Uh, And I've been thinking about it because I know you ask it in almost every interview. Yes, I do. Um, (laughs) I think it certainly depends on the poem. 
uh, I think some, some poems are distinctly letting my guard down and okay. being vulnerable to the reader. Some poems mm-hmm. definitely are, right, sensing a kind of vulnerability and putting up a, 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 a border. Um, I think sometimes, though, I'm, I'm actually climbing a ladder over a wall. Maybe oh with a shield in hand, right? Like, okay. Or sometimes, sometimes I'm building a horse to sneak in past other people. Um, mm. I'm always testing boundaries, for sure. Uh, I think I think testing them to see because I, I don't really have a good sense of my own. I mean, I, I mentioned I, I've been sober for twelve years. Yes. And it's largely because yes. Prior to congratulations, prior to that, congratulations. But I'm, I made a lot of decisions not the safest decisions to make. Uh, right. So I don't, <laughs> I don't necessarily have a good sense of uh, when I should keep a wall up or put a wall down. And so I've got to frequently test those boundaries in order to make sense of where I'm at. All right. So where does emotion fit into your work? And that means different things to different mm. people, of course. Yeah. There are certainly pieces that I have, which it's, I mean, I think the last, piece I added sort of has a, a a resigned and somber tone to it. Yes. Um, yes. I think I think the emotions that I experience and notice others experiencing on a regular basis certainly work mm-hmm. their way into my poems. I'm not generally a poet who is writing to express what I feel. Okay. Um, okay. I think I'm very much in, in kind of the T.S. Eliot tradition with that um, with that approach which is mm-hmm. to say uh, <laughs> any opportunity I can have to escape my own personality is mm-hmm. a welcome respite because uh, I, <laughs> my, my head is a dangerous neighborhood to live in <laughs> so when I usually ask the question can a, can, a pers- can a poet be viewed as being a poet if they don't share emotions that wouldn't register with you well, I, I certainly think I am sharing emotions. Okay. Uh, in the, so, for instance, in the polar octaves, I think that there, I think that there are emotions that have been shared, um, mm-hmm. and I think that there are also emotions that are I'm intending to incite in the audience at various All points right. in different poems. Mm-hmm. Um, so, sharing the emotions, I think, is different than expressing them. So, All right. very nice statement that a poet, you know, needs to uh, share emotions. I think it's more, I'm not sure that the poet needs to express emotions. Okay. All right. All right. All right. In terms of poetry, does it hurt you to write poetry? Oh. Why why not? Yeah, sure. One good thing about music is that when it hits you, you feel no pain. Yes. (laughs) So Uh, true. Marley said that. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I think something is similar with with poetry, but in both cases, you can feel it, right? I mean, I can hear a song, I can read a poem, I can see a painting and get hit. Um, I think it does. I think it does hurt. I think we're open to it when we allow ourselves to be open to feeling everything that the poem offers. It does hurt. Okay. Yeah. Now, are you willing to be hurt by the poetry of others? Why? Oh, why not? Oh, yeah. I don't. I don't see a reason to. I wouldn't see a reason 
to engage with anybody's poetry if I wasn't willing to hurt. All right. Now, when you yeah. think about yeah. your favorite living poets, who are they? Uh, I would definitely include K. Salem Muhammad in that. Um, I'm also a very big fan of Sandra's work. She just published a book uh, called The Triptychs that mm-hmm. I reviewed. Uh, I've got a to Georgia review right now on that book. Um, really innovative form. I also go back to Bruce Andrews uh, and Charles Epstein from the, the language poet, language poetry school. Both of them, I think, are were extraordinary innovators um, and organizers in expanding what poetry is. And I mentioned Christian Book earlier. His his book Unoya. Um, is a seminal, a seminal piece of uh, experimental, which I think um, is definitely provided the seeds for me to start thinking about Polish octaves. All right. You know the other one, who are your favorite dead poets? You've mentioned some, but share them again. Yeah. I mean, I, I, certainly the classics, Homer, Sappho, Virgil, um, and Hedwana, uh, actually the oldest published poet, uh, was a woman um, oh, wow. in Mesopotamia. Uh, I generally think William Blake and Allen Ginsberg stand out to me. Uh, Kenneth Koch uh, and John Ashbery in the New York School. Barbara Guest, um, Emily Dickinson, uh, Laureen Niedecker here in Wisconsin. Uh, mm-hmm. A Wisconsin poet from Fort Atkinson. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anybody else who's really standing out to me. Amiri Baraka. Uh, All right. Who just lost recently. Yes, uh, some years ago. Well, let me ask this question. Knowing what you know about poetry, Nicholas, the, where does your poetic doubt begin? My poetic doubt. Yes. Do you do you mean I need to ask a clarifying question? Yes, talk to me. If I may. Do yes, you mean my doubts about myself as a poet, or do you mean my doubt of the power and potential of poetry? I like either one. Just choose. Pick one and talk about it. Uh, yeah. I, I think it's it's when I've got a piece that I feel like is done mm-hmm. and I move, I transition from being uh, the artist to being the audience, right? Um, there's something that happens. Etienne, the French philosopher Etienne Gilson talks about this, that, that there's a difference. Uh, the individual who is the artist is not the same as the, the individual who is the reader or the audience. Mm-hmm. And it's in that transition when I become, when I start to read my poem and realize that I'm the one who wrote it, but I'm also not the one who wrote it. Um, Mm -hmm. I start to doubt whether I could have made that. Uh, And you're right. I mean, then my ego is kind of attached to it. And in the process Mm -hmm. of writing, I don't feel, I don't feel that, that doubt creeping in. But once, once the draft is done, or even once I've said, this is the poem, um, this is the direction I'm going in, um, 
doubt starts to creep in. Yeah. Right, right. You know, we're going to take a brief break here. Here's a question that you can answer after the break. Do poems okay. change color in certain lights? I love that one. Do poems Ooh. change color in certain lights? We'll be right back. Yeah. We'll be right back. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> back. I am Michael Anthony Ingram. I'm here with Nicholas Michael Raznikov, whose name rivals mine in terms of <laughs> a good sound. <laughs> and, and both Never of them sound almost both of them sound almost as good as the vibes in that bass line and the music yeah. that you had going in the break. Alright. <laughs> Nicholas is in my mind a great thinker. I appreciate that. You are. I can tell that you put your all into your work, into your writing. And I think it provides an opportunity to see, to find new resources that I didn't right. know were there. So the all that yes. I'm putting in is a discovery, right? Yes, very nice. Um, so, well, so do poems change color? In certain lights, my friend. Yeah, I mean, uh, I I just got done watching the Netflix series Kaleidoscope, and I think a poem is the same way. I mean, you can come into a poem. Obviously, the way that we typically approach a poem habit is right top down, left to right. Um, but I think challenging ourselves. This is often how I write. Challenging mm-hmm. ourselves to read poems differently reading a poem from the last word to the first, right? From the lower right to the upper left. Um, Reading only the last words of a line or only the first words of a line. Um, And then also just the different moods that we're in as human beings, the different seasons of our life coming to the same piece is going to change its tenor. It's going to change the, uh, the facets that we can appreciate. Um, I think if it's a, if it's a, sufficiently resourced poem if it's a poem that that um, you know put our all into all right please share another piece this is a fairly short piece it's from um, the the most recent book how's the thing clear nights don't call these stars aimed like headlights at us soldiers come to slaughter our days Count instead the words to give us punchlines a while, to forget to ask, is everything, everything, everything is? That's the end. Wow. I'd like you to share that one again. I was just getting settled and it was done. Share it again. Sure. 
I'll try and go a little bit slower for you. <laughs> okay. We can, we can save it. Let's save this one together. I've got old ears, so go slow. <laughs> uh, clear night. You don't need to go that slow. <laughs> okay, I'll pick it up. I'll pick you up don't need to go that slow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was trying to take into account those old ears. But I, I, it's cool. Sorry, I'll pick up the I'll pick up the pace. Clear night. Don't call these stars aimed like headlights at us soldiers come to slaughter our days. Count instead the words they spell to give us punchlines a while to forget to ask is everything 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 is all right you one of the words was punchlines yeah what do you mean by punchline what does that i know what it means what do you view it as meaning sure so uh, on the one hand i think that it's serving a couple functions okay um, mm-hmm. On the one hand, it's the punchline to a joke, right? It is yes. the, the kind of reveal, right? The, and, and you might also say like the completion of the metaphor insofar as any joke is kind of built on the pattern of analogical reasoning. Um, mm-hmm. I think on the other hand, I'm taking the concept of a line and the concept of uh, the combat that I talked about earlier, or the battle that artists or poets engage in with one another within the tradition, that sense of competition um, and combining them, right? Um, to think, well, the whole line is count instead the words they spell. And the they there is referring to the stars in the first line. So the words that the stars spell to give us punchlines. Um, in order well, to get the laugh, in order to get the laugh, we need the words. And we can't just think about the product or mm-hmm. the feeling that we get from objects, but rather appreciate that which they're made of. Right? Well, it, it made me wonder, because mm-hmm. I'm trying to be a thinker too, yeah, I'm wondering do. if poetry is a punch jo- punchline to a joke and the joke is life. Ah, well, that's a fantastic way of looking at it. Um, yeah, I just thought of it. <laughs> I, I think you might be the deeper thinker here than me. Uh, That's I, hard. hard for me to do. <laughs> what you think about? I mean that that, that makes that makes perfect sense to me. What you just said. I think poetry being the punchline to the joke of life uh, is a very enjoyable way of of looking at it. Um, and I also think about that. You know, the saying that um, it's first is tragedy, then it's farce. Right, that um, life is life is approached first through this sort of tragic lens, uh, and then once we've accepted the tragedy of life, we can have fun with it. Um, we begin to see the humor in it, and oftentimes well, I think the humor is the only way to to cope <laughs> with some of what it, it is. I know in my life, if I if I didn't laugh, I'd cry all the time. To be quite honest, yeah, right. So. When you think about poetry, and you know, you've heard me ask this question again a thousand times. There's so much happening in our world. Speaking of punchlines, mm. the good, the bad, the ugly, as well as the indifferent. Yeah. What do you view as being the role of a poet in modern day society? 
Well, I think on the one hand, it is, I think that there are many poets who are able to speak for groups that they're in who have experienced or suffered uh, unjust oppression. In many ways, I'm not that poet because I recognize, okay. you know, I mean, I'm a cis white man. Uh, yes. I identify as pansexual, so I've got maybe one strike against me, but I'm very, I'm very what I would call straight presenting. Um, All right. So I have a lot of privilege walking around in the world, right? Um, yes, you do. I don't, for all of the, you know, addiction, alcoholism, and mental health struggles that I've got, um, I'm not facing what a lot of other people are facing on a daily basis. And so mm -hmm. I, don't, um, I don't want to speak for other communities. Um, mm -hmm. I definitely want to listen and give space to those communities. And so where I'm coming from is really trying to um, generate new poetic innovation to, okay. provide some, to provide some material to help create resources that other people can use to say what they need to say. Uh, in, in a lot of ways, I'm just, I'm over here, like just talking to myself out loud, trying to come up with new ways to talk or new ways mm -hmm. to deliver these punchlines. Um, I mean, suffering through my own things, right? And, yes, of and course. Trying, trying in a lot of ways to, to voice those uh, and to provide some sort of attention to them and some other pieces. If I get a chance to, to read them, I, you know, I speak a little bit more about some of my own issues, but um, I, I think mainly um, it is either to voice, to draw attention to, you know, the particular sufferings that uh, we each engage in or to mm -hmm. ease the suffering of others. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Actually, that was something that, that Allen Ginsberg said, right? What is the point to, to ease the burden of suffering? Everything else, drunken dumb show. Wow. Uh, so, you know, to the extent that I can, you know, I try to just entertain or engage, uh, provide some sort of resonance for people. Uh, and I feel like that's the best that I can do. Well, I, and I think that's so important to know who you are. That's critical. And know what you bring to the table. And if you don't bring those things to the table, be willing to at least eat from the table. I think sure. that's important. You know, I'd like you to tell me about a poem you were proud of writing, but afraid to share for fear of possible misinterpretation. Sure. I mean, there's, there's tons of the Polish octaves. I couldn't, there's so many. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, and I, I can tell you why, right? I'll give all you right, a, talk to me. the answer will kind of broadly encompass all of them. So with the mm -hmm. Polish octaves, I, I'm completely at the mercy of the alphabet. Uh, with any given poem that I pick, right? So when I took the word gadzooks, because I thought like, wow, gadzooks is a funny word. Like, yes. how am I gonna how am I gonna work with that, right? Well, I'm not gonna get into particulars, but first of all, it's a very limited lexicon. There are there are very few words that you can get out of gadzooks, and there is a preponderance of uh, various racial epithets. Um, and, and that likewise occurs with other words that, um, you know, if I've set myself the task of writing this eight line poem and of getting, you know, eight letters, eight syllables or eight words into it, in some cases, uh, you know, there've been, there've been other Polish octaves that have, <laughs> the only way that I can write something that makes any kind of sense is for it to be like borderline pornographic. And, 
uh, I'm not I'm not necessarily comfortable sharing all of those. So while I set out I set out to write 88 and I've accomplished that goal, uh, only about only I would only say 64 of them uh, are really fit for public broad consumption. Whereas, right. you know, the other the other 24 are kind of uh, a little bit sketchy. Uh, and I you know I worry about who you know I think most most poets I could share them with in kind of a salon style setting and they might still appreciate, you know, the, the music of the piece and, and even, you know, what I was able to do with the words that were there. But in some other cases, and even when I'm alone, I doubt like, uh, oof, this is kind of, this is, I don't know. I don't know how, you know, is this good taste? Is this bad taste? I think I'm offending myself here. All right. Please share another poem, my friend. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I've, my recent project that I'm working on, which won't be done um, anytime this year, uh, mm-hmm. is called GTFO. And what I'm doing in this piece is I'm taking Shake- each one of Shakespeare's sonnets and I'm running it through Google Translate um, through <laughs> somewhere about 14 languages uh, oh. until it goes back into English. And then my job is to basically revise the poem until it's practically unrecognizable uh, and that I just deviate completely from the, the sonnet form um, but but it starts off as Shakespeare's sonnet so this one each one of them is called the book of and then it, it adds some other elements to the title so this is called the book of do you write well seriously freedom requires making mistakes you can't take back and your heart breaks years later than it takes to taste whack. And after aftershocks, you realize you took shelter in a shack of ideas you couldn't conceive that followed you, pounded you flat into a statue of relief that can't be attacked, even as acid rain bubbles on the asphalt black. Hard breathing air thin as patience, but perhaps the patient will relax past the path to your left, and then you bend your back. The mountain scales played your ears seductive on their lap, twirling hair so you'd let go and pretend me to the track. Do you learn like that? And do you like to learn like that? As your actions advertise all the choices you play back, the shattered plate of a preface gets cemented to the crack. We see as faulty reasons mosaics make shellac. Hello, I wholly whisper to the angels in the back of the hellscape I escape like off the rack tortured trousers and slacks or another word for pants in the linguistic parallax. Tell me what knowledge tastes like, like I can't remember that, but for truth's sake, make it hurt when you take me to the task. Wow. That's very powerful, Nicholas. Thank you very much, Dr. Ingram. What was going through your mind when you wrote it? Well, a lot of it, I mean, a lot of it is just kind of, you know, what are the words that I've got available that are showing up on the page? What is that propelling my mind to? Um, mm-hmm. I'm usually operating in uh, just a kind of spontaneous thought, trying to watch what connections my mind is making between each of the different words. Um, and then from that point, that's mostly musical. So there's a lot of here are the rhymes, here's the assonance, here's the alliteration. Uh, here's the play of those that I kind of want between these different words and I'm arranging stuff um, on the, on the page. And then I'm kind of going back through it and trying to string together some sense of meaning that's more mm-hmm. than just the music of the words. Um, yes. I, you know, Eliot said, what does it matter what a poem says? It's how it sounds. 
and that's really the way that I approach composition. Um, when it sounds right, it sounds right. And I'm just trying to get, I'm trying to get it to sound right. Um, so, so to start off, right. I, I think once I got the first line, everything else sort of fell into place in terms of how I was going to revise it. Um, this idea, right. Seriously, freedom requires making, make, making mistakes you can't take back. Um, mm -hmm. That sort of set the tone for me for the rest of the piece, that everything I was going to do in the poem from that point forward was going to kind of reinforce that thesis, um, both that freedom does require us to make mistakes that we can't take back, um, but we can make them right. Uh, but then also to position that seriously at the beginning, because I, it, it's sort of evident to me that in our culture, uh, there are a lot of people who think that freedom means do whatever I want and whatever I want must be okay. And All right. um, I, I think that we've got to take responsibility for the mistakes that we make. We've got to admit that some of the actions that we take are mistakes, right? And that, mm. the, that freedom or liberty also implies duty. And if we do make a mistake, then we have a duty to admit it. Let me ask this question. You're a few years younger than I am. Just a few. <laughs> oh, just a few. Just a few. Social media, I mean, it's just been a blast of energies. It's been everywhere now. Social media, yeah. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Where does social media, media, excuse me, fit into your poetry? Sure. It's, uh, oh, now, it's exhausting. Let me ask this question. Let me ask this question. How is it shaped by social media? That's what I'm mm. going to have to write that down. Sure. Well, certainly, I mean, think that I would be writing in some of the forms that I'm writing in if I didn't have the opportunity to get positive feedback on them. So, like, okay. the, Polish, the Polish octaves I started putting out uh, on my Instagram um, when I started writing them and got a lot of them and then started putting them on Facebook and I got a lot of positive feedback from people about them, which is not what I got from journals when I've submitted them to journals. Um, okay. When I read, you know... So I, I feel like there's a more immediate feedback mechanism that I can get from people who are actually reading the poems that I'm writing versus the kind of slow, drawn-out, um, gatekeeping kind of editorial practices. Um, that, you know, when I, when I have had things published in magazines or journals, I typically don't hear back from people who have read it. Whereas with social media, you know, you're getting a kind of immediate, uh, immediate gratification in terms of the likes that you see, uh, along mm -hmm. with stress about whether people are liking your, your stuff. Um, mm -hmm. but, but mostly for me, the valuable thing is getting feedback from people. Right? All right. When, they say, when they say that a line really meant something or that they really enjoyed it, um, that, that means something. And, and I think that keeps me going. It provides some sort of inspiration. But it's also yes. exhausting. It's exhausting. Yes, it is. What's um, exhausting about writing? Well, I mean, I find the actual writing to be invigorating. But okay. I think that, that it's the social media becomes exhausting. Yes. Um, All right. Feeling like, you know, I've got to grow my following and that's going to be the thing, right? Like, uh, I've got to respond to all of these comments. I need to make sure that I reply to all of these messages. And, uh, you know, and at the same time, feeling, 
I feel at least a tension or a responsibility to also be an engaged reader of other people's work. Yes. Um, and so that also becomes something that, you know, as, as I've gotten out and made more connections in the online social media writing communities across different platforms, I've, I've found that I've had to scale back. Um, okay. Really I'm focusing just on, Instagram and Facebook. Now I was trying to do both of those with TikTok and with Twitter and it was just too much. There were too many people yes. doing too many things and I couldn't yes. give, I couldn't give enough attention, not just to my own work. I mean, I do that, whatever I do my own writing cause it's kind of an addiction. Um, but, but I couldn't give enough attention to all of the people who were reading me to also read their stuff. Um, mm-hmm. So I had to, I had to definitely scale back. Well, you know how I love a good poetry concert. But due to time, we've only got time for one poem. Sure. <laughs> so we have to put the big concert on for next time. So All please right. share with us one more time. I, I mean, I feel like we've hit a bunch of uh, a bunch of different notes. Here. I've got. Uh, yes, yeah, I'm sure it's just good. I've got one more. This is actually something I had written for someone on social media who gave me some praise okay. for uh, some bars that I had written. So I, I wrote. All right, very nice. Jay Allen, Jay Allen Poetry on Instagram. This is called Purloined Letters. Riddle me this, puzzle me that. Where could it be? Where is it at? What does he mean? What is he thinking? I want what he's on, even if it's thinking. Written in the margins with ink that disappears once it hits the light until it soaks up all your tears. I'm Sherlock. You're Watson. Dot your eyes before I cross them. Obey your fleeting thoughts while I'm feeling awesome watching Blossom. I never drove a Dotson. I never bred Dachshunds. I dove into the ocean. Now I'm Flotsam. I get milk and drink it till I got some. Chocolate mustache. You want to touch that? Wear this. Wear that. I'm a robot. Rock'em, sock'em. How come a cow poke squat a brown joke and it's a hot one? Now you got runs up in your buns watching bots battle for a fortnight until you floss them. Riddle me this. Puzzle me that. Where could it be? Where is he at? What does he mean? What is he thinking? I want what he's on. Even if it's thinking, don't sweat my craft. You want to play Minecraft with Mycroft on a Microsoft desktop. But as a dad, I'm a polite tightwad. We can't afford that. You already got an Xbox. I'm an ex-smoker who don't yet got a next slot. It's past my bedtime. I'm on a deadline for an overnight light nod. These walls feel musty and dusty. Ham salad, Dutch tiger crust. You might grok my nylons. Want to watch me wash it down with a pint glass of eggnog. Such and such said so and so said so on and so on, son. I'm quite tired now. It's been one and I've been done. So I tip my hat and put two up while I salute my flight squad. (laughs) Do you think you were meant to be a poet, my friend? I don't think I can be anything else. Mm. Um, So whether there's a power out there that has intended me to be a poet or... There's a random accident of genetics that is, you know, an evolution that has propelled me to being a poet or if I'm just so hard headed that I refuse to not write poetry, uh, right. spend my time kind of obsessing about writing weird eight line poems. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know, but I, I certainly don't know how to be anything else. Well, what surprises you most about it being a poet? What surprises me most? Yes. I, the whole thing is a surprise. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, being a being a poet, I think, 
I, I feel a profound sense of responsibility to be attuned prizes that the language provides. And what I mean by that is that the poet um, Ted Berrigan said, any, you know, anytime you hear something and mishear it, you've got a line for a poem. Right? So how many times in, in random conversation or when we're walking down the street, do we hear somebody say something and it gets caught in our ear? Um, and I feel like it's my job to be on alert for that, for opportunities like that, whenever I'm reading, whenever I'm walking anywhere, if I'm watching TV, if I'm listening to a podcast, if I'm talking to someone else, my, my mind is always working through, where's the poetry at in this? Like, where's the, where's the deepest possible meaning that could come out of this experience? And how can we translate that into a new form? Um, and the fact that that can be done like mm-hmm. is, that is what is surprising to me that, that there's an inexhaustible re- set of resources to keep doing that. You know, we've reached the end of our poetic journey, but I wanted to mention that in your bio, you mentioned some of the mental health issues that you dealt with or are dealing with. Yeah. May is national mental health awareness month. Mm-hmm. And I'd like you to come back in May, if you don't mind, and mind share your work, and share sure. your work, potentially part of a panel of poets, and on your own, too, either one, both. But I sure. want to talk I, to you about the importance of poetry, as, and as someone, too, who deals with some of these issues of depression, anxiety, PTSD, mm-hmm. you name it, I've got it, mm-hmm. how poetry has assisted you work through some of these things. Oh, certainly. Yeah. yeah that's certainly. an important topic that people don't always want to talk about. So I commend you, commend you for putting that in your bio, putting it up front where people can see, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've got, um, I've got a really good friend of mine who's also a poet who's starting to really come into his own over the last few years as a poet who I tried to encourage. And he said something similar to me when, when he got a copy of Imaginary Friends that mm-hmm. he was, he was moved by the fact that I had included in my bio that I live with borderline personality disorder, yes. um, depression, and ADHD. Mm-hmm. And um, yes. it, just him knowing that there was someone else who was going through similar experiences mm-hmm. was helpful for him. And yes. I definitely, you know, like I said, I certainly don't think that I've got the worst problems in the world. Um, mm-hmm. But as someone who regularly struggles with mental health issues, yes. Um, I yes. know how hard it can be for all of us uh, and for any, anyone else who's, who's working with that kind of a deck. Um, and it, it makes getting through a day a lot harder than someone else who doesn't have those issues. But I will say this. Yes. By our recognizing that we have uh, mental health issues or mental illnesses Mm -hmm. i think we're in a much better state than a lot of people who don't necessarily recognize that they have a lot of the mental health issues that we also have and so i think part of that is also developing a sense of this is the hardest part for me developing Mm -hmm. a sense of empathy for all other humans um particularly those who are struggling with mental illnesses that they don't recognize that they're struggling with you know, for many years, I traveled the country as a part of my professorship, 
And mm-hmm. I talked about the importance of empathy in building relationships. And there are many times that I work with people in different mental health groups on using poetry to make yeah. changes or to just think about, I guess this is a change, life in a different kind of way. So, again, I commend you. And you're right, it's not easy. It, it, when you live with mental illness, it's a day-to-day existence. Mm-hmm. In many situations, it really, really is. And your friend that you talked about, invite him to come back with you. That Indeed, I nice. shall. Indeed, I shall. <laughs> that would be nice. <laughs> I knew there was something about you when I first <laughs> ran across you, and I am so glad I took the opportunity to reach out to you. For you, I'm to very grateful for the opportunity. Yeah, thank you. You will be back. You will be back, and I want to follow your career as well. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. And uh, I'll keep listening. I mean, like I've told you, I listen at least two or three times uh, a week. I've got you on repeat while I'm doing my exercises in my garage. <laughs> You're part of what's keeping me warm during these Wisconsin winters, Dr. Ingram. Well, so I'll you gotta, keep, you gotta keep the poetry flow coming. <laughs> right. We need you. <laughs> Thank you. And we need you. We need you. All right. Everyone. Nicholas Michael Ravnikov, <laughs> whose name only rivals mine for <laughs> impressiveness. I want to say thank you to you sharing your work, bringing a new form to us, one that even I understood. So take care, everyone. And as I share with you every single week, let poetry ring somewhere throughout the land. Good luck, Nicholas. Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio is available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also check out the website at qlpor.com.